It's podcasting time. This is Just Another Jerk, Dispatches from Japan. As always, I am your host, Jonathan Isaacson. Remember to subscribe to the podcast wherever it is that you get your pods. While you're at it, please rate the show, and if you've got a minute, give it a review. So today, I'm coming at you with a shorter episode, uh, but it fits into the whole Everything You Never Wanted to Know About Japanese History series, which, incidentally, I have made a playlist for over on Spotify. So if you want to binge on some Japanese history, um, a lot of it is depressing, so sorry about that. But yeah, uh, you can check out the playlist. I will try to put the link in the show notes, or you can find it on the homepage. Yes, I have finally gotten around to setting up a homepage for the show. So, you can access the homepage for the podcast by going to tinyurl.com slash jerkpod. One more time, that's tinyurl, so tiny, T-I-N-Y-U-R-L dot com slash jerkpod. So, jerkpod, one word, J-E-R-K-P-O-D. Now, the homepage... It's still a work in progress, but I will be working on it as I have time. So, yeah, today. Um, today's Dispatch from Japan is a short story, uh, but it's a very sad story from history, and it does involve dead children. So, um, it doesn't get too graphic in most places. There's one spot where it's just a little bit of a... A little bit graphic, and I will I will give you warning when we get there. So if you want to skip that part, um, that's fine. And if you don't want to listen to this episode, listen about kids getting killed by an explosive. Um, I completely completely understand. You can skip this episode. Come back hopefully next time for a happier story. Uh, but this is a story worth telling. So yeah, let's go. The year is 1949. It's March 30th. The kids in Nadachi, which is a town on the Japan sea coast of Niigata Prefecture, are on spring break. Now, in case you were unaware, the Japanese academic calendar, like everything else here in Japan, runs from April until the following March. So, spring break in Japan is also the break between academic years. Now, Nadachi was a small town um, pretty close to the Niigata-Toyama border, if you know your Japanese geography. Um, Today, Nadachi is part of a a large city called Joetsu, uh, but in 1949, it was still its own municipality. And being a rural area along the Sea of Japan... It had both farms and a fishing port. Now, here's just a really quick note about Japanese cities and towns and villages and whatnot, especially in the hilly rural areas, which Nadachi very much was and still is. Now, the towns in these areas, they're often characterized by shuraku. Now, shuraku is a Japanese word It's often translated as, like, settlement, uh, hamlet, or village. And now, it's essentially, it's a word 
Shuraku, it's a word for a cluster of homes and the associate uh, the associated businesses and whatever. Um, now, some rural municipalities, you know, they are half a dozen or more of these shuraku scattered over a fairly wide area. And Nagachi was very much this sort of town, and it really still is this sort of area today. If you look at a map, you can see clusters of houses scattered across areas. And in Nadache, they start on the coast, there's a few along the coast, and then they follow the Nadache River inland. So you have these little groupings of houses every, you know, 5 to 10 kilometers or so. And so when, when I say the word village, that's what I'm talking about today. I'm not talking about the other Japanese word for village, uh, which is a political entity. It has its own government. Shuraku does not usually. Shuraku is just a collection of houses, and the best word for the sake of this story is village. So, I digress. I always digress. Let's go on. On with our story. So, March 30th was a calm, clear day with very little wind and few waves. The adults of the village went to work fishing and tending the farms as was normal. Being spring break, the kids of the village were free from their normal studies and were running around, playing by the shore, playing in the rocks, as kids are wont to do. Most of the day passed as uneventfully as any spring break day for a bunch of kids can. At around 4 p.m., one of the fishermen was heading out of the port. And in this area, some of the fishing does happen in the evening or even in the middle of the night. So this fisherman, he was headed out to sea. And he noticed something that looked a bit like an oil drum floating in the water about 300 meters or so from the shore. This oil drum looking thing, it was a very dark red color. But this fisherman, he didn't think too much about it. Um, he was, you know, he, he was on his way to work. He didn't have time to stop and investigate something floating in the water. Now, the drum continued floating towards the land, and people in the village, they noticed it. Suspicions were raised that it could possibly be a naval mine. Now, after all, it was only four years after the end of the war. Remember, this 1949. There had been several mining operations in the waters around Japan, and I don't mean mining for metal ores or coal or anything. I mean explosives. So there were these mining operations around the waters of Japan. And the biggest of all these was there was a U.S. Army operation called Operation Starvation. The idea of Operation Starvation was to mine Japan's main sea routes and the areas around major ports to disrupt shipping, thus starving Japan of needed supplies and forcing surrender. And a lot of these mines had been dropped with parachutes from airplanes. So these naval mines were very drum-like. They looked kind of like an oil drum. So it was very 
likely, you know, it was a very plausible conclusion for the people of Narachi to think that, hey, this thing that looks like a drum, looks like an oil drum, might be a naval mine. Remember, these people, these are people who just got through the experience of World War II. They know this kind of things happened. And as the this, this drum-like object got closer, it became very clear. There were some handholds and other elements on this dark red drum that made pretty much everyone with any knowledge worried that this object was an explosive mine, and rightfully so. And this exploding device was beginning to approach a small rock outcropping known as Futatsiwa. Now, Futatsiwa just means two rocks. So I'm guessing this was a little rock outcrop that looked like it had two parts. And this naval mine was approaching these two, ro- this, these two rocks in the water. And if you know anything about how these mines detonate, that is a bad thing. So the local police officer was dispatched to the scene, as well as the local fire brigade. And there was also a local who was a veteran of the war, and he was also called. And it was confirmed that this object was, without a doubt, some sort of a mine, some sort of an explosive. And they would need to tow it, very carefully, obviously, away from the shore until they could get, you know, someone who could actually take care of it, presumably the government, the national government, or even at this point you could have asked the U.S., uh, occupying forces because this is 1949. The U.S. is still occupying most of Japan. So they were. The plan was to tow it away from the shore, at least far enough to keep the the village safe. And the captain of the fire brigade. Oh, before I before I get to that. So the police the the, the police officer of the area as well as the fire brigade. They were all called and. By this point, a lot of the local kids, they had seen something was going on, and all the local kids had assembled to watch what was going on. And so we got these, you know, the police officer, the fire brigade, and all these kids watching. And the captain of the fire brigade asked a woman who lived nearby, who was also watching the commotion, if she would go get a rope from her house so they could attach the rope to to the boat and then the rope and the boat to the mine and drag it, tow it out to sea. Now, this woman, she returned to her house, which was only about 20 meters from the shore, to get a rope. Now, I would guess that living this close to the shore, her husband was probably a fisherman, so they probably had ropes lying around the house. I mean, this is just a guess, but, I mean, living that close to the sea... In this area, it makes sense that that would be the way it would be. And it's also very likely that the fire captain knew who she was because this is a very rural area. I'm guessing everybody knows everyone. Anyway, the woman went to get the rope. And as she got to her house, she turned around to have a look at the scene before heading into into her house to find the rope. And as she looked back, she saw the police officer, the police captain, staring at the mine, trying to figure out what to do. And then she saw him take off his coat 
and start rolling up his pant legs. So it looked like he was probably going to get into the water, wade into the water and see what, what he could see. And after she saw that, she walked into her house and went to look for a rope. And inside, once she was inside, she heard a huge explosion. The awning of her house collapsed, and it briefly trapped her in, but she was able to get out on her own, didn't need help or anything. But she got out, and she quickly headed back to the shore because her her two sons had been amongst the group of kids who were watching the operations. Now, here's the quick warning. Um, this next bit is the sad most graphic bit of the con- of, of this story. So if you'd prefer to skip ahead for 15, 20 seconds, whatever, I completely understand. So start, you know, skip from here. Here's the, 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 the slightly graphic section. The woman found her 11-year-old son, but when she got close, she saw that half of his head had been blown off. Down below the seawall, she found her old, the older son, her 14-year-old son, still warm and still standing where he had been watching. The explosion had frozen him in place. His mother, she held him and massaged him, hoping against hope that he would be revived, but, of course, he too was gone. In all, 63 people were killed by the explosion. 59 of those were children. Due to the short time frame between the police officer arriving and the explosion, as well as just the lack of having people to shoo the kids away to a safe distance, there was no one and no time to get the kids back and out of danger. Beyond the human toll, 44 houses sustained heavy damage and another 59, they, they took some level of damage. There was a temple about 300 meters away. Uh, it's called Soryuji. If you want to look it up on Google Maps, um, you can see the, the temples there still. So this temple, about 300 meters away, there were some pieces of shrapnel that fell on the grounds of the temple. The next day, the dead were cremated together at the shore. The coffins were brought by the families and lined up. Candles and incense sticks were placed by each coffin before the pyre was lit, and it went on until the evening. As to the nature of the mine itself, the country of origin was never determined. Obviously, the mine itself was gone. There was nothing to investigate. And the other problem was that the police officer, the police captain, the one who had done the most thorough investigation of the device, one of the four, he was one of the four adults to die in the explosion. The most likely country, country of origin is the U.S., but it's not the only possibility. So as I noted earlier, the U.S. Army's Operation Starvation mined the areas around major ports. And nearby Niigata City, that that port was one of the ports targeted. As Niigata was, and still is, a major industrial city on the Sea of Japan's coast. I think it's probably the largest industrial city on the Sea of, sea of Japan side of the country. 
Um, if not the largest, it's it's probably top three. E- it's easily top three on the Sea of Japan coast side. Uh, most of Japan's big cities are on the Pacific coast side, but there are a couple um, on the Sea of Japan, and Niigata, I think, is the biggest. So, yeah, Niigata City was... The, the port of Niigata was one of the ports targeted in Operation Starvation. So, it's definitely possible that... Um, the, 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 some of those that the mine was one of those mines um, Niigata was actually on the list of potential targets for the for the uh, hydrogen bombs so it's very possible that a mine connected to Operation Starvation was what washed up in Narachi I mean to me that seems like the most likely option and it seemed the same to the people of the time but it is not the only possibility there's also the possibility that it was a japanese made mine because many mines were deployed defensively they were kind of anchored with with cables to the seafloor to kind of protect the ports and I, I'm, I'm guessing that then japanese boats would have been given notifications okay there's a mine here here and here so you have to use this channel so any boats from the U.S. or other uh, enemy countries would hit the mines, and that would be yeah. That that's I, I'm guessing was the idea. And the idea is maybe some of the mines, like the cables, you know, four or five. At this point, it's five, you know, four years, so four to ten years of sea water would have eaten away at the cables, and they would have broken and. The mine might have come loose. That was the possibility. Um, because, of course, it's also worth noting that if this were a Japanese-made mine, in the immediate post-war era, Japan was very financially strapped. So a proper mine-sweeping operation was never fully conducted. Um so it's it's definitely possible that it was a Japanese mine. There's also some suggestion that it could have been a Soviet mine because apparently around the same time, 1949, kind of 1950 era, other Soviet mines were surfacing around the same time. So it's at least possible that it was a Soviet mine from somewhere. So there are three possible culprits in this case. And that is the story of the Narachi naval mine incident. And I am left personally with two thoughts. The first is that if only there had been another adult or two, you know, I'm not saying that it's anyone's fault because everyone's busy. They were busy. They were working. They were trying to make a living in immediate post-war Japan. Life was hard in 1949 in rural Niigata. They had to work. They, they, there were no other options. But if only one or two other adults had been available, had been able to herd the children to a safe distance, they wouldn't have died. I mean, of course, yes, the police officer, the other three adults, who I'm guessing were the fire brigade maybe, Yes, they still would have lost their lives, and that would have been a tragedy. But at least they would have died in the line of duty. 
you know, protecting their fellow villagers. And there's at least something noble about that if, if, if you buy into that, that, that way of thinking. But the kids, I mean, they were on spring break. They were having fun. They were just, what's, what's exciting going on in the village? And, man, that, that's tough. My second takeaway is that mines, landmines, naval mines, they suck a lot. I mean, sure, Operation Starvation was incredibly effective, so much so that studies done after the war suggested that had it been started earlier, had Operation Starvation started earlier, the Pacific War would have ended much, much sooner. You know, Hiroshima and Nagasaki might not have been necessary, but I'm, there is actually debate, were Hiroshima and Nagasaki actually necessary even as it was? Again, that's not, not today's story. Um, Operation Starvation is our story. So, yeah, it, it might have helped end the war sooner, Operation Starvation, but tell that to the family of the 59 kids in Nadachi. They were collateral damage of this type of warfare for a war that ended four years before they died. So, boo. That's all I can say. I, I, I mean, I guess yeah, war sucks. I mean, I'm not naive. I understand that, yes, sometimes that's all that's left when you're faced with certain realities, but... Man, that doesn't change that war sucks and mines, landmines, naval mines really suck. If you want to visit the site of the Nadachi naval mine incident, there is a small shrine with Jizo-sama. So Jizo is a Buddhist, not a deity, but... If you don't understand Buddha, if you know Buddhism, you know what I'm talking about. But he's not a he's not a deity, but he is some something like a deity. Um, Jizo is the protector of the souls of children who died, at least in Japanese Buddhism. And the Nadachi fishing port in rural Niigata, there is a small shrine with Jizo in it to the victims of this. This naval mine explosion. And it's right along Highway 8, National Highway 8, along the coast of Niigata, if you're interested. Um, if you want to go, you have to have a car. Uh, there's no other way to get there. From what I, or, I mean, if you're a long-distance biker, you can get there on, on, your, on your bicycle. But for most people, it's a, it's a car trip. But it's there. So if you'd like to visit and pay your respects to the victims of the Nadachi Naval Mine incident, you can do so. And I know this is a bit of a downer, but we're going to end there. And please remember to subscribe, rate, review the show, wherever it is that you cast your pods. The podcast is on most major platforms, Apple, Google, Spotify, Stitcher, Pandora, um, some other ones, I'm sure. But those, I mean, if, if you're not listening on one of those, what are you using? I don't know. Um, if it's not on your favorite platform for whatever reason, let me know, and I will probably be able to get it on there. Uh, you can find the Twitter for the podcast at Just Another 
pod, oh, sorry, the Twitter is at just another cast. There we go, the Twitter, just another cast. You can email the show at just another jerk podcast at gmail.com. And you can find all this information and more on the new website. Uh, again, the URL is tinyurl.com slash jerkpod. One more time, tinyurl.com slash jerkpod. And that is all for me. I'm Jonathan Isaacson, and I'm out. Peace. Peace.